There was no evidence that governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, yeah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. On this show, we discuss a number of different types of rackets, such as drug cartels, mafia organizations, corrupt politicians, crony capitalism, you name it. Um, and today's opening story has to do with the racketeering trial involving a pharmaceutical company called Insys. The best known for selling a form of fentanyl, which is one of the probably the most powerful opiate available, their version is an oral spray that goes under the tongue that is only supposed to be used um, for people dealing with the pain associated with cancer. Essentially, a number of different high-level employees of the organization are now facing trial. I'm recording this Thursday Thursday morning on the 11th, um, and as of now, the jury is deliberating. But basically, the, the, the prosecution has a really strong case. The company's defense is going to argue that w- what they did is sort of par for the course in the business world. And with that said, there is a certain level of, I guess we'll say, white lies that an American consumer accepts. You know, when you go on the car lot and you see a, a 1992 Pontiac, sure, you know, the salesperson's going to try to present it as though it's the greatest car on the planet. And, and we, again, we accept a certain level of, of that sort of salesmanship. But what the company's accused of is direct, outright fraud in a number of ways. In one way, actually, the, their employees at, at their call center um, allegedly pretended to be from, you know, different doctor's offices to, to make up different diagnoses um, so that their, their medications could get approved. There's another aspect in which they pay different doctors to act as uh, speakers for their company. Um, and, that, and that's really like a, a, a industry-wide scandal as well. Um, it's over a multi-billion dollar industry in which you know medical device makers and pharmaceutical companies will pay doctors to speak on, on their behalf. But there can't be an outright quid pro quo. And in, in this case, it's, you know, these speaking engagements were really just... Sh- basically just shams. In some cases, they're ac- actually speaking in front of just empty rooms and then collecting a, a large paycheck afterwards. And in fact, the company actually had spreadsheets on specific doctors who were essentially giving them the, the largest return on their investment. In other words, doctors who were prescribing the most of their drug. Again, there were just a lot of really negative aspects in this trial. In particular, there was a rap video that the company filmed in which they uh, looped in the, the background track from um, that popular um, ASAP Rocky song. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm not remembering the, uh, the, the title right now, uh, but it was a, a song promoting this oral uh, fentanyl drug. Again, a number of different executives are on trial right now. A couple of them actually pled guilty and then became government witnesses, most notably the the former CEO of the company. One person in particular who's now a government witness is the the former VP of sales. Apparently, he actually 
uh, was so concerned with the different evidence that was out there that uh, allegedly he took it, or at least he claimed it to, that he took his cell phone up to the top of a mountain and threw it away there just to, to try to destroy evidence. And that's just kind of ridiculous on a number of levels. Because again, this is all electronic with any sort of email or anything like that. There, you can always access that information. But just kind of to get back to the difference between what is sort of acceptable in the industry versus going way over the line, um, there's kind of a it's an open secret that a lot of pharmaceutical companies will hire very attractive young female sales reps, and there's nothing wrong with that. There, there's obviously sort of um, an implicit intent there because you know most of these doctors are are older males and you know that obviously a young female sales rep can sometimes get their attention but again as long as there's no sort of illegal conduct that there's nothing wrong with that but in fact it's alleged that different members of the company openly instructed their sales reps to act more sexually some of them allegedly did have sex with doctors and there's actually a, a fairly high level sales executive in the company and she was hired she was a a former stripper you know i I don't think that that should be like held against somebody or there should be a stigma attached with that but it was a major red flag because um, this person didn't really have any didn't have any sort of sales background at all it didn't take really like like a entry-level sales job was hired as a high-level sales exec she admitted that she even you know performed a lap dance for one doctor a long story short we'll find out soon enough what the what the verdict is in this case but we're looking at all these different aspects of the, the shady sales techniques of this company but at the end of the day again they're selling this really dangerous drug in some cases, you know, results in overdoses. There are a number of different stories in the news. Obviously, like the Mueller report um, has been on a lot of people's minds. And, and I think in some ways there's almost like an overreaction by those on the right to not really acknowledge that the Russian government will sort of game the system whenever they can uh, as far as influence in a foreign election. Obviously, you know, I've been on record about this quite a bit as well. And the U.S. government does the same thing. Um, But there was a a recent report by the BBC, and it has to do with Russian interference in the country of Madagascar. You know, it's an island country there in Africa on the southeast coast, off the southeast coast. It's it's a country that's been plagued by a number of different problems. It's a former French colony. Um, There's been a history of coups and corruption ever since it it gained its independence back in, like, um, the mid 20th century if I'm remembering right but it's kind of the typical case that you see in a number of these different African countries in which the country is just absolutely loaded with natural resources but the population is very poor really you can point to you know outside influence from foreign countries and the, the open corruption of the, the leaders there there's a story I linked to it, um, I think it was like last year, in which a number of different Chinese companies were involved in basically just sort of looting their timber industry. And in Madagascar, it, it has a really valuable um, timber industry because there are a number of different rare trees, and it's just kind of rapidly being, being disappeared off of the planet with no real tax revenue going to the state. It's essentially um, this sort of black market. Um, for pushing this this resource out of the country. Um, But to get back to that story, essentially there were a number of, quote, tourists 
from Russia, a couple of different high-level businessmen who have um, connections to the to the Russian government. They're a diamond trader, a couple of different businessmen as well. We're basically there pretending to be observers of the election when in fact it turned out that a number of the different candidates afterwards uh, openly admitted that yeah they they took bribes from these different russians um, in exchange they had to essentially sign this agreement to support whoever won so basically what it means is that, that these guys gamed the system and they wanted to to corrupt whoever would be in office I mean, and it's backed up with again a lot of evidence um, there's a Russian correspondent who actually was one of the leads on this story. Just to kind of give you some context, at the end of last year, that's when this presidential election took place. Again, there weren't really a lot of real options as far as candidates for these voters, um, but the person who ended up winning uh, was the current president, uh, Rajalina, who had been a former leader of the country, a former coup leader basically a dictator. Um, he was in power from 2009 to 2014. He, like you know, most of these other different leaders in, in Madagascar, is essentially a very wealthy man, and there's a whole lot of evidence to suggest that um, he, he's been a very corrupt. And this is sort of the way R- Russia is starting to advance their soft power and to try to, you know, again, corrupt different foreign leaders. I mention that because we do have this sort of backdrop of the Mueller report. Many people on the right sort of feel vindicated. I've mentioned in the past, I never really, I was always pretty skeptical of the, the Russian hacking collusion aspect of that whole investigation. In my opinion, the corruption with the Trump Trump administration is pretty open. I mean, you, you can look into the emoluments clause and there's just so many ties between his organization and essentially this sort of transactional way in which Trump operates. Um, he's just got, there's, there's just this long history in which he has links with organized crime, different corrupt foreign officials. There's a recent story that was released by Global Witness in which it was revealed that the daughter of the, of the president of the Republic of Congo um, had purchased an apartment at Trump Tower there in New York City. It's been a theme in which his organization essentially acts in a money laundering role for different, again, corrupt foreign officials or organized crime figures. Infamously, uh, Baby Dr. Volier, I think it was back in the yeah, back in the 90s in which he bought a, an apartment up there in, in Trump Tower. But again, to get back to this more current story, Global Witness has basically found roughly about a half a billion dollars um, that's been siphoned from the country's treasury into different private accounts um, throughout the global system, which some of which those proceeds ended up buying um, an apartment there in Trump Tower. And again, this has been a trend. What has been difficult is to prove that his organization knows that this is money laundering, that not that they essentially that they haven't just been duped. It's just been this long-term trend in which his properties end up being a, a source of money laundering. On that note, the three-year anniversary of the Panama Papers um, just passed. What they found was that investigative work has led to over $1.2 billion being recovered. Um, that's That's a story that we could dedicate an entire podcast to. Offshore tax havens often end up being a way to just to hide dirty money. And it sort of implica- the implication is that this is really more about foreign government officials when it really involves a lot of people, everything from 
ordinary businessmen, but in some cases, major corporations such as like Apple and Nike. Some of those um, revelations have come out in these investigations that they've basically been stashing all kinds of money offshore. Companies like Apple and Nike, they, they do have the letter of the law behind them. It's not Apparently, it's not really technically illegal what they're doing. Um, they've been able to get around that. But needless to say, if, if you or I stashed a few billion dollars or a few... You know, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in a offshore account. Uh, more than likely, if we are caught, we're we're going to go to jail. But when you know, when a major corporation does it, or an extremely influential and wealthy individual does it, it's really just sort of a slap on the wrist. Again, I mentioned um, you know, Russia Gate or allegations involving Russia and sort of state-sponsored hacking groups. I've talked about other ones. Uh, other of these types of groups in prior podcasts, in particular China and North Korea. But there's a story that, that came out, and in fact it was four days after the Mueller report was released, and maybe it was an intentional timing on that report, uh, but it has to do with Beto O'Rourke. Um, he's you know a prominent Democratic presidential candidate. has a lot of sort of charisma and, and a lot of good PR following him. What was that? Unveiled is the fact that he was a member of what was essentially the original activist hacker group. It goes back to the 80s, a group called Cult of the Dead Cow. They like to use um, go by the, the CDC, um, which I don't want you to confuse that with the Center for Disease Control. This, this was basically the precursor to Anonymous, but they actually did coin the term hacktivism. But just to get back to Beto O'Rourke doesn't seem to be that any evidence that he actually was a hacker himself. More or less what he was known to do was just to sort of post on their messaging boards. Again, this was sort of before the days of social media. When he was doing this, he was actually a teenager in high school. But he, funny enough, he used the uh, screen name of Psychedelic Warlord. What he did admit to was, because um, this was back in the days with dial-up modem, and you, you, you had to pay for this. These were actually long-distance phone calls, so apparently he actually used uh, stolen credit card info in order to do this. But long story short, this was basically like a phase for him. He stopped his involvement after leaving high school and going off college. But just to kind of give you a little more information on that group, they actually created a program back in the 90s called Back Orifice, uh, which was a direct attack against uh, Microsoft. And again, this is really more of a hacktivism type role because their issue was that with the fact that Microsoft knowingly was allowing certain certain gaps in the security with their program. So um, the CDC's program of back orifice essentially allowed people from the outside access other people's computers through Microsoft Word. The group also was in uh, a really open challenge with the, with the government of China to fight the, the censorship. But again, I just think it's kind of a really interesting story that this, you know, potential future president admitted to all this and, you know, that the world didn't really overreact to it. It's kind of, it's really sort of an interesting story. But again, I do think a lot of that has to do with the timing. A, a number of different outlets did cover this story, but again, it was, uh, the story was re released uh, four days after the Mueller report summary was released as well. So there just wasn't as much interest. Again, getting back to sort of foreign policy, 
there was a really interesting story in Haiti last month um, in which a group of U.S. mercenaries were caught in Haiti, heavily armed, and it involved the president, this aide of the president, a couple of different um, Haitian officials, they met this group of mercenaries, there were five men total, uh, two of them are former Navy SEALs, another of them was a former Blackwater contractor, the other two, if I remember right, were from Bulgaria, again, military contractors, and they they flew into the, the capital city airport, they were basically whisked through, um, didn't have to go through any kind of customs or inspections, again, because they were heavily armed. Um, and essentially what they were tasked with was escorting this aide to the central bank. And his explicit role was to take about $80 million of public funds that was tied to an oil fund and embezzle that, take that money, and put it into the private account of the president. Um, and what they tried to do, they tried to do this after hours with the central bank, and they just kind of raised enough red flags to where some people called the cops. Um, there was this standoff for a while, no, no shots fired or anything. Um, but these, these mercenaries were taken into custody. But long story short, they were eventually released. The charges were dropped, allowed to go back to the U.S. and not face any sort of um, criminal penalties here. But again, it's just kind of this very curious case where they're working on behalf of the U.S. government or I mean, at a minimum, this was just sort of allowed and, and um, no, no strong, no, no action at all took place you know, with the U.S. government. Uh, but just to give you like a little bit of background on, on what I'm talking about, the money that was embezzled involved this oil fund from money that was given by Venezuela to Haiti, and it was supposed to basically subsidize the oil in their country. But th this has basically just been a slush fund in the country. Um, the prior administration, um, their government has found or estimated that around $2 billion was embezzled from that fund um, to benefit the, uh, the former president of Haiti, Martelli. This fund had to be cut off and has to do with U.S. government sanctions on Venezuela. So it's, it's just really this kind of interesting story that, and again, there, there's a ton of corruption in Venezuela there as well, and you, you could make the argument for sanctions against them, but as I've always pointed out, with these sanctions, there's a lot of politics behind it. Um, so at the same time, there's this incredibly corrupt government in Haiti there, but we're not putting the same types of sanctions on them. These, these sanctions are, are very much um, sort of cherry-picked for geopolitical purposes. There's been a tremendous amount of instability in Haiti as a result. Um, basically, once once those subsidies were taken away, the price of gasoline in their country has skyrocketed. Um, and it's, if I remember right, this is basically the poorest country in this hemisphere. So, you know, a change like that has major effects on the um, economy there in Haiti. And basically, there's been widespread protests. Um, in fact, um, some people have actually died um, at the hands of the of the government forces during these protests. Again, there's just just a lot of instability in the country. In particular, there was a story that happened right at the beginning of the year, um, in which these police, this uh, group of police, were basically going through a, a very poor neighborhood there in the capital city, and they were accompanied by gang members um, who were 
who had machetes with them. Long story short, they murdered a group of around 20 people. So we don't know if it's a story of, of the police acting on behalf of corrupt government officials. More than likely, they were just acting on behalf of this, these gang members, but it just sort of brings up images of the tom-toms and the sort of po- political um, persecution that's existed in Haiti for many years. But again, I just sort of want to give you that, that backdrop to let you know about the instability that's happening in that country. For one, again, we're, we're, we're using these different sanctions um, to try to, to stop kleptocrats in Venezuela and Russia. But again, these, these mercenaries um, in the U.S. were essentially helping a kleptocrat there in Haiti. But again, we're not putting the same type of sanction on their country. These people were allowed to come back to, to our country and not face any sort of penalty. I want to make that point because, again, there is tremendous instability in the world. Um, it's a time where there are just refugees all across the world who, who do need safe haven. And there's been a scandal. I mean, it's been an ongoing scandal for many years, but there was a really good report that came out recently. And it has to do with bribery at the UN Refugee Agency, which is the UNHCR. And again, when I talk about a bribery scandal, probably pops into your head is the revelations from this college bribery scandal. So, and again, I try to focus more on stories that you probably haven't heard much about or at all. And I'm pretty sure you've heard about the, the college bribery scandal. You know, I link to a few of those stories on the website as well. But I do want to get back to this story of this UN bribery scandal. There are different caseworkers who work for this agency, and their recommendation is basically crucial for somebody in order to gain refugee status and to be able to leave the country. Only a a very small percentage of people who are legitimate refugees are actually allowed to leave their home country and and go to safety. And again, so much of it relies upon the recommendation from the UN's caseworkers. Um, and, there, and there have been a number of different corruption scandals involving the UN, but this is, I mean, this is arguably one of the worst. Uh, but a long story short, oftentimes there are caseworkers who force these people to pay them bribes. In some cases, they've even forced the people to force them or extorted these people for sex in order to get a recommendation. This racket is fairly well known enough that some people actually pose as though they're a rep of the UNHCR in order to to get bribe money. They're they're sort of typical institutional corruption. Um, There have been officials who have blown the whistle and they've faced retribution. Also, the UN has essentially blocked independent investigations to look into this scandal. I'll link to it. It's something it's definitely worth reading about and, and letting, know, letting other people know about as well. While we're on the uh, subject of corruption, there's basic legal corruption, uh, a subject I've talked about quite a bit, and that's civil asset forfeiture. A recent story that it should surprise us, but it's not surprising. It has to do with the, the district attorney in Manhattan, Cyrus Vance, there's been a number of stories about him over the last few years. Um, for a while, he got to walk around with this unofficial title as a progressive prosecutor, which just was completely, completely undeserved. Um, if you look at his track record, he's known for you know prosecuting really very minor crimes and doing it in a fairly harsh fashion, even though he's tried to 
to walk around this label as a liberal progressive prosecutor. And that name probably rings a bell because, again, there's been a number of different scandals associated with his name, particularly the Harvey Weinstein case in which there were very credible allegations against Harvey Weinstein. But after the Manhattan DA dropped the charges, suddenly these donations from his attorneys end up going into the um, the fund for Cyrus Vance. Um, a similar thing happened with Donald Trump's children involving a Soho venture in which allegedly they um, defrauded investors. And again, after the case was dropped, there are these different campaign donations that went to Cyrus Vance there. He's actually been investigated by the FBI for his conduct. And this goes back to the actual legal corruption, a recent story. And this is out of Reason magazine. And what they found is that Cyrus Vance has actually spent over $250,000 of money from the asset forfeiture fund to basically just sort of wine and dine himself. This is over the last five years. A quarter million dollars has been spent at luxury hotels, first-class flights, fine dining. Again, all this money, you know, public money that's gone for his own consumption. Um, and again, this is a guy who who's lauded by the media for many years as this quote-unquote progressive prosecutor. And again, some of that's actually finally starting to be exposed. There is an actual progressive prosecutor there in uh, Philadelphia who's got a lot of media attention, Larry Krasner. And it's because prosecutors do have a major role in the prison industrial complex. They, they have a lot of latitude in, into what types of crimes they do charge and, and what the requested punishment will be. And the last story that I wanted to talk about today was a, just a, it's just an awful story. It's a two-year investigation that was conducted by USA Today, the Arizona Republic, and the Center for Public Integrity. Oftentimes there are these laws, these, these really you know, controversial laws that we model legislation. In other words, um, a lobbyist or a trade organization will write a recommended bill and in many cases, our public officials will just take it word for word and submit these and vote on these bills. Again, there are a number of different examples, but even a person like myself was surprised at the scale of what's going on here. The revelation from this recent report, they found that there are over 10,000 bills in which the language of the bill was basically copy and pasted from these different forms of model legislation from different trade groups and different lobbyist groups. Now that's over the course of the last eight years. You know, they gave a number of different examples in in this report. One that really jumped out at me was one called the Asbestos Transparency Act. So when you see a name like that, you're sort of assuming that this is something that's clamping down on companies that are, are getting away with, you know, putting asbestos in people's homes and looking the other way. Again, with a title like that, that's what you would assume. But again, as is often the case with legislation, the title is really the exact opposite of, of what's taking place. And in this case, it, again, that is the case where it's, it's a law that was written by corporations who want to protect themselves, and it essentially made it harder for a victim um, of asbestos poisoning to sue the company that is responsible for it. 
So on that note, uh, that's really the final story of today. Stay tuned. I'm going to have some great guests here in the future. If you would, try to support this podcast the best you can. I ask that you give it a five-star rating, share it on social media. But again, really the best way to support the podcast is to go out there and grab a copy of my three-book series. It's called Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So until next time, thank you much. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You can have the license. The price is $250,000, plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross. Of all four hotels, Mr. Corleone.